Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open it up to the book of Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you, grab one of the hardback black Bibles from under your chair. If you're using one of those, open it up to page 184. If you don't have either of those, grab your phone, your tablet, your device. I don't care what you have. Get the Word of God in front of you. Now, if you've been here for more than about, I don't know, two weeks, you know that every single sermon starts with me saying that. If you got your Bibles, hope that you do. Open them up to wherever we're at, right? Why does Josh do that? I want you to recognize that what we are doing here, what I am doing up here, this this isn't Josh's wisdom. If you know me well, you know Josh isn't really that smart anyway, right? Like this is God's word for us that's going to equip and empower us to live out the mission. That's what this is right here. All I'm trying to do is help you to see what God's word is telling us and then take it and apply it to our lives. And you will learn so much more if you do that with the Bible open in your face. You don't even have to look at me the whole time. I'm not that good looking anyway. So just look at the Bible as we're looking at this together. Sound good? Okay, so Joshua chapter nine. That's my disclaimer that wasn't even in my notes. Here we go. Um, It's been a month um, since we've been in our series here in the book of Joshua, which we've entitled Heading Home, His Faithfulness, our obedience. And and as we return to this book, I'd I'd really like you to remember that as we began, I told you that this book is about the history of God faithfully leading his people into the land that he promised to give them. But this book is more than just a book of history. This is a prophetic book. In fact, I, I told you that in the Hebrew Bible, this isn't kept with a bunch of historical narratives, like in the orders, you know, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? We've got the order, but in their Bible, it's not kept with historical narratives. It's kept in a section known as the former prophets, and that's important for us. Because if we think about this book just as historical narrative about God's people, we won't approach it for what it is. We'll see it as a collection of facts, We'll see it as a bunch of details that tell us a story and not much else. But if we remember that this is God's word to us, we'll be better prepared for it to speak into our lives. We'll be able to see that it can make a difference for us today as followers of Jesus. You see, while Joshua does tell us the history of Israel, that's not its main purpose. We're not told all of this history just so we can know a bunch of cool facts about something that happened 3,000 years ago. It's meant to show us who our God is. This is meant to teach us how our God operates in and through us. It's meant to lead us into deeper relationship with him. This historical narrative that we're studying is able to teach us and encourage us and empower us to live on mission for Jesus. And so a month ago, we were in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we saw the Lord lead Israel to this decisive victory over the city of Ai. The Lord gave Joshua the battle plans. The Lord directed every step of the way in the battle itself, and the result was this spectacular victory for Israel. 
From there, we were transported instantaneously 20 miles to the north to a valley between the feet of two mountains, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and and we were at this massive interactive worship service. And what we saw was all of the people of Israel renewing their covenant and their commitment to the Lord. And now, as as we pick up in chapter 9, the conquest of Canaan is going to continue. So let's just dive right in. Joshua chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. We're going to do the whole chapter, but we'll go fast. The Bible says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbled. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made a peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out to reach their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them 
And he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are from very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this text right here, I ask that you would speak to us in in a way that helps us to understand how this historical narrative from thousands of years ago actually speaks into our lives today. Holy Spirit, do the work of illumination that your word tells us that you will do so that we can take this and apply it to our lives so that we can live the mission you have laid before us. Father God, we ask that you would work in us right now. Remove any distractions or temptations to have our thoughts wander to other things and and just for a few minutes, help us to focus on your word that we might live for you. We know that you're able to do this and so we hand this all over to you and we ask that you do it. And we ask in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we're reading this chapter today, I don't want you to mistakenly believe that there's been some sort of major break in the story between chapter 8 and chapter 9. The narrative of Joshua chapter 9 picks up right where chapter 8 ends. In fact, I believe that the events that are described at the beginning of chapter 9 are happening concurrently with the events that are described in chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, which is that big worship service. This is all one story moving forward. And that's important to recognize because it will help us to understand what our author is trying to teach us here. Israel has just defeated AI in spectacular fashion. And following that victory, they renew their covenant. That is the end of chapter 8. But in chapter 9, the story continues to move forward. At the same time that Joshua and Israel are renewing their covenant with God, the enemy was at work. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, as we read that, especially because we've had such a long break between chapter 8 and chapter 9, you you might have missed that there has been a seismic shift in the attitudes of the people who inhabited Canaan. 
This is the third time in Joshua that we have read of the nations hearing of the works of the Lord in relation to Israel. But this time, as they hear, their reaction is different. The first time was in chapter 2. As the spies are talking to Rahab, Rahab reported that as soon as the people of Jericho heard of the successes and victories that the Lord was giving to Israel, their hearts melted. She said, there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then when we get to chapter 5, it begins by telling us that when the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people to cross over on dry land, it tells us that their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. But now as we come to chapter 9, something has changed. Here, when the kings hear what happened to Ai and Bethel, their response is different. They're no longer terrified. Here, when they hear what's happened, they they haven't lost their fighting spirit. Something's changed. But what? What has changed here to cause their attitude to change? The answer is found in Israel's defeat at the first battle of Ai. After that first battle, the kings of the land learned that Israel could be defeated. And this emboldened them. Israel's no longer seemed like it was quite so invincible. And even though Ai and Bethel were ultimately defeated, suddenly these kings had just like the smallest glimmer of hope. And so they began to plot and plan. And what I need you to recognize as we're considering that is is that this is just an example of the awful effect of sin on full display. You see, because of one man's sin, because of Achan's sin, Israel was defeated at Ai. And even after Israel had atoned for that sin, even after God had given victory to Israel over Ai, there are still consequences to that sin. That one defeat emboldened the rest of Israel's enemies. Now, we can't know this for certain, but Many scholars actually speculate that if if Achan had not sinned, that battle at Ai might have been Israel's last. They speculate that the other nations would have, like Rahab, responded with faith and belief in the one true God. That Israel would have completely and quickly occupied all of the land. But instead, Israel is going to be haunted by a long history of battle and bloodshed and idolatry. And it all started with one man's sin. Church, what we're seeing here, what what we just cannot miss is, is that this is just one more reminder that we cannot take sin lightly. Yes, God will forgive our sin. Praise the Lord for that. Yes, we can be reconciled to God, but that does not mean that there will not be earthly consequences when we sin. We cannot take sin lightly simply because we know that forgiveness is available. Yes, Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. Yes, he did. And he will forgive your sin. Yes, when we confess our sin, the Bible tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
But the call to follow Jesus is also a call to pursue holiness. It's a call to pursue righteousness. So we cannot take our sin lightly. And what we're seeing right here is yet another reminder that sin carries with it serious and lasting consequences. We have to take sin seriously. We have to recognize that the consequences of our sin can carry forward long past the moment that we transgress God's law. So what do we do? We pursue righteousness. We pursue Christ's likeness. We strive to put our sin to death and live like Jesus every single day. What we're seeing here at the beginning of Joshua chapter 9 is an important reminder of the consequences of sin. But we're also seeing a reminder that the enemy is always scheming. We need to be aware of that. We need to have awareness that that is going on. The enemy is always scheming. Even while Israel is worshiping the Lord, their enemies are scheming. Some of them are planning an attack. Others are looking to deceive them. And that happens to us too. Listen, there will be times where Satan is going to just come straight at you in a full-on frontal assault. You need to know that's coming. We need to be prepared for that. Just like the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites planned to fight Israel. Just like that, our enemy is planning a frontal assault on us. There are times where that's going to happen. But I think far more often, especially for Christians in the West, especially where following Jesus is culturally acceptable, where it's politically, it costs you nothing to follow Jesus, especially for people like us where we live. I think far more often the enemy comes at us like the inhabitants of Gibeon came at Israel. He comes looking to deceive us. Take a look, beginning at verse three, the Bible says, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they put on, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provision and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Like, listen, what, what, what we're seeing here, <laughs> these guys are crafty. They, they're really trying to deceive them. The, the way our author describes their actions, he says it's with cunning that they acted. That word in, in the Hebrew, it can be used both in a positive sense and a negative sense. When it's used in a positive sense, it, it means something like, like prudence, like wisdom. And when it's used in a negative sense, it implies maliciousness, treachery, evil intent, and, and it's that way that it's used right here. They were looking at the situation and, and they realized that Israel's decisive victories at Jericho and Ai, where everyone was devoted to destruction, where everybody was killed, they looked at that and they said, that is a foretaste of what's coming to us. So they decided to try and trick their approaching enemy. This is all one big ruse. They're intentionally making it look like they have traveled a long way. They, they're getting out their worn out clothes, their ripped jeans, you know, like, which I guess is fashionable today, but for them, maybe it wasn't. They're worn out sandals. 
They've got that luggage that you're about to give to Waterfront Rescue Mission. They're throwing that on their donkeys, right? Because it's worn out, it's old. They don't need it anymore, but they're using that. They're, they're going through their pantry and they're pulling out all the food where the expiration date has already passed and they're packing that up. They're making it look like they've been on the road for a long time, for months, maybe even years. You see, somehow along the way, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but, but it's clear that somehow along the way, they have heard how the Lord instructed them to behave when it came to coming in and taking over the land. We don't have time to go there today, but when you have some time this week, go take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, especially verses 10 through 18. Because right there in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Bible actually tells Israel that they could make covenants of peace with nations who were very far from them. But those that were close by, those that were their neighbors, they were to devote to destruction. And somehow along the way, these Gibeonites, they've heard about that. And so they're looking to look like they're very far away. And they play their part well. In verses 6 through 13, they tell Joshua and the men of Israel that they've come from a very long way. They're even smart enough in their report to to not mention Jericho or Ai. Like, because that news would not have reached them if they were from very far away. So they only mention the battles that happened, the victories that happened before Israel crossed over the Jordan River. They only bring up the stuff that they would have had time to hear about. And then they present their evidence, their dry and crumbly bread, their worn out and patched up wineskins, their tattered, dirty clothing. They're showing all the evidence that Israel needs to to see, to prove their point, to deceive them. And, and, And as we watch this, they're falling for it. But before we jump all over Joshua and Israel and call them out for this, we we ought to recognize that we are just as easily deceived. If you don't believe me, those of you my age or older, how many of y'all remember Columbia House? Nobody? Okay, so so here's the thing with Columbia House. Back in the 90s, like back in the 1900s, it was a long time ago, back in the 90s, Columbia House had this offer. They would give you 10 CDs for a penny. Um, Guys, a a CD is like how you got music before Spotify, right? Um, and, And so they would give you these 10 CDs for one cent, and it was like this awesome deal. And on the surface, as we saw that, like we would, people would sign up for that. It was great. But here's the thing. If you read the fine print, when you signed up for those 10 CDs for a penny, we're talking like, like 90, 90 to 100 songs, guys. This is a lot. This is like a lot, right? For, for one cent. When you signed up for that, you were also signing up to buy an additional CD every single month for at least a year. And you're going to pay full price plus shipping and handling. Now, nobody has ever explained to me what shipping and handling is. Apparently, it costs like $10 to take a CD and put a stamp on it and put it in the, the mailbox. But, but you would pay all of this stuff, and, and all of a sudden, this great deal, it had deceived a bunch of us. And we know that just because of the numbers. In the 90s, Columbia House was generating $1.5 billion in revenue. billion with a B. They had 15% of the music market share. We are easily deceived, just like these guys were. So so when you're looking at Joshua, when you're looking at Israel, don't, don't judge these guys. Recognize the threat. 
Recognize that as followers of Jesus, our enemy is always scheming. He's always working to fool us, to lead us astray, to defeat and destroy us. And often, the way that he does it is with half-truths, just like the Gibeonites had done. Did Did you notice that, by the way? Like, almost everything that they said was at least half true. Like, like they, they had heard a report, but the only part of the report that they told Joshua and the people of Israel about was, was the part that had come before they crossed the river. Right? It's half true. They had been told by their elders to take provisions, but the provisions that they took were already worn out dry and crumbly before they packed them up. These half-truths, they're dangerous because half-truths, they are full lies. And our enemy uses them to try and defeat us. He'll tell you things like, God wants you to be happy, so just do whatever you want. That's a half-truth. Because yes, God does want you to be happy. God does want you to find and experience true joy. But he wants you to find it in him. It's a half-truth. Our enemy will tell us things like, God will forgive all of your sins, so just do it now and ask forgiveness later. That's a half-truth. Because yes, God absolutely will forgive all of your sins. But his word makes clear that his grace is not a license to pursue sin. God calls you to be holy when we receive God's forgiveness and grace, simultaneously we receive with it a call to pursue righteousness. Half-truths are dangerous because half-truths are full lies and our enemy uses them to try and defeat us. We have got to have the situational awareness. We've got to know who we are, of where we are, of who our enemy is. We've got to have the situational awareness. If we want to serve Christ effectively, we have got to have the situational awareness that our enemy is always scheming. And once we have that awareness, then we need to remember that discernment is always needed. As we continue in the text in verses 14 through 15, we're we're actually going to get kind of a negative example of this. These Gibeonites, they have come to Israel. They've told them they're from very far away. They've told them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. That, by the way, is an offer to enter into a suzerain covenant with Israel. A suzerain, these are big words, but it's pretty basic. A suzerain is an overlord. And and what they're offering to do here is to become vassals, to become servants of the suzerain, of the overlord. And how it works is they submit to that overlord, they pay taxes, and, and then the overlord provides protection and doesn't kill them. And so this statement that they're making, come now, make a covenant with us, is an offer to become a vassal to Israel. They've presented their evidence that they are from far away, this dry and crumbly bread, the worn out and patched up wineskins, the dirty, tattered clothing. They've, they've done all of these things to prove their case. And for Israel, this, this is all just too good to be true. But Joshua and the leaders don't see that. They need some discernment from the Lord, but, but they don't seek it. 
In fact, in verse 14, that, that's what we're told. Take a look. The Bible says, so the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. If you write in your Bibles, underline that verse. Because this, I, I believe, right here in verse 14 is the chief lesson we need to learn from Joshua chapter 9. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. They, they looked at all the evidence themselves and they decided, yep, these guys are telling the truth. We can believe them. And so verse 15 says, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Listen, verse 14 is the center of chapter 9. There are 13 verses that lead up to it. There are 13 verses that follow after it. And right here, dead center in the core of the the chapter is the core message of the chapter. And that's that we need the discernment of the Lord. They They didn't get it. But as we consider that, perhaps what's most important for us to recognize is is that Joshua and the men of Israel had not been negligent in in their investigation of these foreigners. It's not like they slacked off and and weren't suspicious of what they were seeing. They did some investigation. They asked the right questions. Like, look at this again. Verse 7 says, the, the Bible says, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How then, then how can we make a covenant with you? Like they suspected them. In verse eight, the Bible says, and Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? He didn't believe their first statement. He he pushed back a little bit on them. And then in verse 14, the Bible says, the men took some of their provisions. Now, this can be a little bit confusing with the ESV, but the NIV um, translates that verse, the Israelites sampled their provisions. They, they took some of that dry and crumbly bread. They looked at the wineskins. They, they looked at their clothes and saw that they were, they were tattered. They investigated the evidence that they were given. These guys did their due diligence from an earthly perspective, but they did not seek the Lord's counsel. You see, they fell into the trap that we fall into so often. They were thinking they only needed guidance from God when when they were in doubt. And here they didn't have any doubt. They they knew the answer. They thought they had everything under control, so they didn't need God's help. And I think we do that sometimes too. We think that we've got it all under control and we don't need anybody else's help. All right? When I was a flight student... um, very early on in flight training to be a backseater in the F-18, the first six flights that I would go on are called contact flights. And what they'd do is they'd put us in the front seat of the T-6 Texan II, which is the little trainer, prop job trainer that fly around here all the time, those orange and white ones. They'd put us in one of those. uh, and, And it was what we affectionately called our pilot appreciation flights. Before we learned how to talk on the radios, before we learned how to operate, uh, radars, navigate aircraft, before we learned how to employ weapon systems, the first thing they wanted us to do is learn a few of the basics about actually flying the plane. And and so they'd put us into these contact flights. 
And I remember on one of those flights, we were up in the working area that, that's in the skies up above this area and above Pensacola, and, and my instructor pilot was trying to teach me how to properly trim out the airplane so that um, it would be under control at all times. And, and I honestly, I thought I had it figured out. I thought I had it good. So my, my instructor handed me the controls of the airplane. He said, you've got the controls. I said, I've got the controls. And I grabbed the, the stick and the throttle and, and the rudders. And, and he says, okay, Josh, I want you to trim out the plane. And, and I'm like, I got this cake that was easy. So I, I, I adjust the trim a little bit. The trim controller is on the stick there. And I adjust the rudder control. And I, I think I've got it all right. And when I think I've got it all about right, my, my instructor says to me, okay, Josh, you, you got it? And I say, yes, sir, I got it. And I'm like hovering over the stick. So I'm not touching it, but the, the plane's staying put. And, and, and he says, okay, I want to see your hands. And in that moment, I was like, you condescending jerk. I said, I've got it under control. I know what I'm doing here. What do you, you want to see my hands? But it was an order, so I obeyed. And I threw my hands up in the air. And as I threw my hands up in the air so he could see that the plane was perfectly trimmed and would stay in control flight, the plane rolled upside down and went into a steep dive. He said, I have the controls. I said, you have the controls. He said, I have the controls. And then he recovered the airplane from a spin that we had entered into. Now, I, I thought I had everything under control. I thought it was all taken care of. I thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't need his help. And I was wrong. The truth is, had he not taken the controls and recovered us from that spin, I didn't know what to do. Like, I was just along for the ride all the way to the scene of the crash. But he knew what to do, so he took control. We think we've got it all together and that we don't need to ask for help, but the truth is we do. So often, we think that we don't need help as followers of Christ. We think that we've got everything under control that we understand what's going on around us. We think that we don't need to seek the Lord's guidance. We fall into the trap that Davis, Dale Davis called the subtle unbelief that assumes I have this under control. It's unbelief because we don't think God needs to help us. But as followers of Jesus, we need discernment from the Lord all the time. We need to seek and know the Lord's will all the time, not just when we have a bit of uncertainty. And we do that by knowing this book right here. We do that by opening it up and, and reading it and studying it and memorizing it. We do that by spending time in prayer, by talking to God, by asking him to guide us and to lead us. And, and if you're not big on praying all the time, I, I get that. Let me encourage you by starting in just like, like like shotgun prayer. Just one sentence, God, I need your help with this. Just do that throughout your day. And then let those one sentence prayers become two sentence prayers. And then paragraphs. Let your prayer grow. My favorite place to pray is like either when I'm doing chores out on the farm or I'm in the shower in the morning. You don't have to be in a special place to pray, but talk to God. That's how we're going to get his guidance. We can also get it by going to other faithful followers of Jesus who we know are going to open up the scriptures, who are going to study it, memorize it, learn it to seek God's will, who are going to go to him in prayer, and they can help guide us as well. But listen, we need discernment from God. It's always necessary. That is the central message of Joshua chapter 9. That's what our author is trying to teach us. But as Joshua, the person, makes this 
covenant with the Gibeonites, there's, there's at least one more lesson that we can glean here. And that's that as a Christian, you're called to honor your word. Let me show you that. Beginning in, in verse 16, we learned that this ruse only lasted for three days. Like these guys figured it out pretty quickly. And, and as that Joshua and the people figured it out, they traveled to go meet the people. And, and as they get there, after this short three-day journey, they go to the Gibeonite cities, and, but they don't attack them. And this led the Israelites to do what the Israelites do best. They grumbled against their leaders. They complained about Joshua and the other leaders because they wanted to attack them. But even then, they honored the covenant they had made. They honored their word, and and it was an unpopular thing with the people. They remained faithful to their word. And in verse 19, we read why. Take a look. The Bible says, But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. The Gibeonites had deceived Israel in order to obtain this covenant. They'd they'd straight out lied. Like, like this isn't even a lie of omission. Like, this is a lie of commission. They, They did things on purpose to deceive Israel. And Israel didn't go and ask God if they could enter into this covenant in the first place. Like on the surface, there is plenty of reason why they ought to just break this covenant and turn the people of Gibeon into the next Jericho or Ai. But their leaders had made a promise. They had sworn by the Lord, by the God of Israel. It was not their honor at stake. It was not their name at stake. It was the Lord's. They were acting in his name. They were living as his people. They were his representatives. And if you claim the name of Jesus today, if you call yourself a Christian, that's what you are. You are Christ's representative here on earth. As Christians, we represent Christ. When people look at us, we want them to see Christ. That's our goal. As we interact with people, we want them to experience the love of Christ as we love them like Jesus would. As we serve them, we want to serve them like Jesus would serve them. We are Jesus's representatives here on earth. So we're going to be a people who we do what we say we'll do even if we're tricked into it. Even if we're there because of our own sin or the sin of others, unless we are violating God's commands, we're gonna honor our word because we represent Jesus. So Israel honors their word. They do not attack or kill the Gibeonites, but they do confront them. They do go and ask, hey guys, what are you doing here? And as they confronted them, the the Gibeonites suffer the consequences of their deception. There's some some punishment that's going to come along with this. They're made to be cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for all of the people and for the altar of the Lord. They're made to be servants. They're made to do all of the tasks that nobody else would, would want to do. 
Joshua makes them servants. And in doing this, Joshua, I love this, by the way, whose name means the Lord has saved, saves the Gibeonites from the wrath of Israel. I, like, there's something beautiful in this. Like, like think about what's happening here. Because right here, Joshua is, he's, he's kind of serving like a preview of Jesus. By the way, Jesus, Joshua, same name. He saves the people who are not part of the covenant community. He saves the people who really do deserve the wrath that's coming them because of their own actions. He saves them, but he doesn't just save them. He brings them into the community. Like they become part of Israel. When Joshua calls them in to serve on the altar of the Lord, all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. Like, like do you see how beautiful this picture is right here? And, and what's going to happen is over time, they're going to become more than just servants. They're going to become part of the people. So when we get to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, after the exile, after all of Israel has been driven out of the land and they come back, Nehemiah is going to count some of the sons of Gibeon as part of Israel. He's going to count them as some of the people who are part of this, this group of followers of the Lord who are going to rebuild Jerusalem, going to rebuild the temple. Gibeon itself is going to become a Levitical city. The Levitical cities were the cities that were given to the, the tribe of the Levites where, where they were scattered all throughout all of Israel. And there, the Levites who served in the temple, who served as the priests, they would live in the tribe of Benjamin and they would teach and instruct and admonish all of the people around them to love, follow, and serve the Lord. Like this whole thing gets redeemed. This is just a footnote, by the way, like to the, to the chapter and to the, the, the message. God redeems this whole mess to the point where Gibeon becomes part of Israel. But what I just can't have you missing is that if God can clean up a mess like this, like what can he do for us? Like, like the mess here is pretty significant, right? Like Gibeon lied. They intentionally deceived. The Israelites weren't much better. They didn't talk to God about it. They didn't say, hey God, should we do this? No, like they just did their own thing. They got them into this bad state that's gonna create some problems along the way, but God is able to redeem it. All of this is in his control. God redeemed all of it. And like I said, if God can redeem that, he can redeem whatever situation we're going through because God is faithful and God is working. And we know that for those that love God, all things come together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So as we close this out, my, my, my takeaway for you is be encouraged. God's at work. Even as our enemy is scheming against us, God is at work. So 
So recognize that we need discernment from the Lord all the time. God's at work. So honor your word. You represent Christ. You're his representative. God's at work. He can redeem your mess. No matter how big you think it is, he's bigger. God's at work. So let's join him in his work. Be encouraged, faithful Christian. That's what we're seeing here. God is at work. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.